Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in technology, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 51 of the podcast, the topic is AI for learning. Our guest is David Schreier, managing director and co-founder of Esme Learning Solutions. Schreier is also an associate fellow at Oxford University. In this conversation, we talk about what's next in digital learning innovation. We discuss the challenge of bringing cognitive science to online learning. We explore the effects of real-time feedback on social learning metrics, how to develop critical thinking, how to use AI to solve problems in the world, and how to scale it beyond elite institutions. We explore a future where online learning might be even better than campus learning. Valuable class was my playwriting class by Paula Vogel. And my second most valuable class was a critical thinking literature class. And so, you know, it, it, these are not on their surface when you take them, something where you'd immediately say, I'm going to get an ROI off of that critical thinking class. But later in life, it turns out that's a really important skill. David, tell me a little bit about the uh, meta challenge of education. Uh, Let's talk about that for a while. What is it that education in in AI should Mm -hmm. train people to do? So, so, so let, let me back this up. I just want to make sure I understand your question clearly. So you're not asking the question, what should AI do for education? You're asking, how should we educate people about AI? Um, well, I'm asking you, what is it that AI, um, what is it that AI does that people should know? Because when you teach AI, as we started with, you start with, you often start either with this very technological orientation, and it's about teaching you to execute sure. AI. Or you start at the meta level and you say, what's needed here is just for mm-hmm. you to have an overview of AI. And I know mm-hmm. that you have, you know, when you're at MIT teaching Media Lab students, you're doing much more than that because you want them to actually. Use stuff, yeah. Create and build stuff, but to to the point earlier where we talked about this need for educating the population, ostensibly in critical thinking. What should the goals be for what we ideally want the world's population to know about? AI? Sure. So, so first of all, uh, I kind of have some good news, bad news, which is. Um, the, the rise of what's called low-code and no-code AI, which basically means you don't have to be a programmer to make an AI now. You can, even today, but certainly within a few years, you can just talk to the computer and tell, tell it the problem you're trying to solve, and it'll create the code for you. So, so, okay, now anyone can use it. That's not necessarily a good thing, but it does democratize access. All right, fine. So, so first of all, we want to know, we, we try to understand, well, what can AI do? Because that informs then, you know, which problem you look to solve. I like to make sure, no matter what we're teaching, to help students continuously go back to the question of what problem are we solving? People don't buy technology. They buy solutions to problems. And so what problem are we solving? So that's an important sort of recursive function that we 
run through again and again of as we're building these startups, whatever they are, um, what problem are we solving? So what can I, what is AI's capabilities and how does it interrelate with this question of what problem am I solving? And then, and this is really important, what problem should I solve? So a colleague at Oxford, Luciano Floridi at the Oxford Internet Institute, uh, he's done some fascinating work on a, a not quite universal, but certainly multi-country framework for ethical AI. So he looked at 47 different principles across 42 countries and distilled it down to five. Hmm. And he said, these are the common principles across pretty much most of the Western world, right? And, and you know, this is, ethics is absolutely relative and there are different ethics in different societies. But, but um, you know, for a lot of countries, this is the, the thing that everyone, you know, uh, um, uh, can agree on. Um, and, and so, uh, so basically, um, examples of this would include, you know, an AI should be benevolent, meaning, you know, it should do good for the world. And at the same time that it's being benevolent, it should also be non-malevolent. So while it's doing good in one place, it should not do ill somewhere else, right? Um, you know, it doesn't do you any good if you have an AI that makes more loans to um, you and me at the expense of making fewer loans to people of color, right? It's like right. that is a bad outcome. Um, and so, so we need to think of, of us, and there are five principles that he outlines, but, but those, are, those are a couple of them. Um, and, and so that gives you some, so, you know, the point there is not so much the fact of what the five principles are, but rather that when we're helping people understand ethics, it's not like an intangible thing and it's not a kumbaya, feel good, let's all hold hands and we feel good about being ethical. No, there are practical, tangible things you can do in building AI systems around the question of what you should do and what you shouldn't do. And obviously personal choice enters into this, but we want people to be making informed decisions rather than, and this happened a lot with, and I'm sorry to name names, but this happened a lot with Facebook where post hoc, Everyone from junior engineers up to including the former president have come out and said, I regret what we have done. I didn't realize what we were doing at the time. And so we want people to be thinking more prospectively as they're building these great world-beating companies about what is, what is the impact that that company going to have, not just on your target audience, but on everybody else. Facebook did not help with the subversion of Western democracy out of a desire to destroy democracy. Their assistance in these activities came out of a pure profit motive. They made more money out of extreme speech. And their little AI algorithm kept feeding you more and more extreme speech because you were more addicted neurologically to interacting with the computer when it would feed you these things. You had a little burst of dopamine and your endorphins went up and you were excited so you stayed on longer. And so what that did is ultimately ended up polarizing the electorates. Um, just for the benefit of our little recording problems here, in case uh, my worst fears show up, why don't sure. we uh, return to a, one question, which I felt and, was... And I'm going to run out of time, so we got to make sure we're... Yeah, so uh, is that going to be in five minutes or 10 minutes? Uh, I got another... I can, I can do another 10, yeah. Yeah, so let's do another 10 because I just want to make sure if, if my worst fears come through here that we still uh, have got something. Note in okay. the file here. 
So what is it um, that AI in learning promises to do? What do you think is the most important role uh, of AI and what is happening in digital learning right now? So there are a few things happening in digital learning and AI can make it better. So we're in, at the very moment under COVID, we're in this forced migration where we went from, let's call it 130, 150 million people who are digital learners to suddenly over a billion people overnight are suddenly digital learners. And, and many of them are not doing what we build at Esme Learning, which are, we call them natively digital classes. These are richly produced and they have fancy videos and graphics and exercises. This is more like you're learning over Zoom or you're learning over Skype. You're learning over some video conferencing software. And, and, um, and so if you apply techniques of cognitive and neuroscience, you can make that virtual webinar better. Most people don't, however. Um, so in fact, at Esme Learning, we released a free class for educators that says, here's how you take a Zoominar, a Zoom webinar, and make it not suck. It's not what the class is called. The class is called Driving Digital Engagement in Virtual Courses. But, but the subtag could be how to make Zoominars not suck. Because a lot of them are just taking the same lecture that happened in the classroom and throwing it up on, on video chat software. And, and that's not good because in the classroom, there are a lot of things that force you to focus. When you're in this little screen on your laptop, you have distractions, your attention span is shorter. The average attention span of the learner is roughly that of a goldfish. It's about eight seconds. And so you got to do a lot to, to change people's experience so that they're more engaged. And, and where are we today with, with that in the best systems? Are we truly moving towards a, a place, you know, in foreseeable future where you can create the kind of attention online that, that matches the learning experience you would have? In, you in can, but not enough people have adopted these techniques. So in the spring, when COVID hit, a lot of colleagues asked me to jump in and help out with their classes because their, their lesson plans have been disrupted. So I did, you know, hours and hours of teaching that was not on my schedule. And, and you know, students would say to me, that was just like being in a classroom. And, and if you do a Zoominar well, it is just like being, it's just as dynamic and engaging as being in a really good classroom. But most are not. Most, I mean, I had one professor tell me, I just took my three-hour lecture and I delivered it over Zoom. That is not good. And what is the real difference? I know you're very uh, passionate about peer learning. How is it that you can empower peers and teams to truly work, even though they may not actually physically be together or be together with the teacher even? Yeah, so, so a couple of ways. And, and so I don't know if your screen can show graphics, uh, um, uh, but I'm, I can share an image that can show you if you enable screen sharing. So you just have to go down to share screen and let me grab the, grab the screen. Um, yes, just give me a second. Um, I think I have enabled it. Okay, let's give it a shot. And so what I'm going to share with you now is, is you know, and, and we, we teach a variation of this in, this in this free program that we put together for Esme Learning. Um, but, but basically, so this is from, from Oxford, right? I did this presentation with my colleagues there. When I teach on campus, I try to make a really interactive classroom. So I give you a little bit of lecture. 
then you might do a table exercise with three or four other people. And I walk around between the tables and I give you a little coaching. Then I give another lecture. Um, then I give you another table exercise. Then you take a break. Maybe then there's more lecture, some Q&A and, and a wrap up, right? And so, um, you know, there, there are these little 10 or 20 minute segments that break up the 90 minutes. It's not 90 minutes of me talking. And that makes for a dynamic classroom. And maybe while I'm doing the lecture, people raise their hands and ask questions in real time. Online, you have to take that whole thing and make it into many, many, many shorter segments. And so maybe these are like little five-minute segments and you like have a poll and a lecture. And the exercises, you, you do breakout groups. So I set up a prompt question during my lecture and then you have a lengthy discussion. And then we do a readout. And then maybe I show you a video and then we have Q&A and then we have a break. And so much, much shorter in terms of these segments and it's mixed media. And so even with the limitations of doing Zoom, we can still make a much better experience. And, and the, the, the online class that we created sort of gives you that more. But that's not enough. I want to be better in the classroom. And that's where an AI can come in. Because what if I could educate a thousand people at the same time and give them the same personal attention as if we were in that breakout room where I walk between the tables. So instead of me walking between the tables, we take an AI coach and it listens in on the breakout room and gives you feedback so you are getting better as you're going. And when you do that, it goes from me with my ideas to us with our ideas. And you harness the collective intelligence of the group. It's almost like training wheels for emotional intelligence, right? It helps Make sure everybody's participating and everyone's contributing. And, and so this is an AI spin out from, from Sandy Pentland's group called Riff Analytics. But they, they provide the engine for our, for our AI learning for the groups. And then the other thing we're doing, we're working with another MIT spin out called Gamelon that provides a digital expert. So at 3 a.m. when you're doing your assignment, the goal will be you can ask it a question and there'll be a digital twin of me, David, that'll answer the question for you. So you're getting my knowledge even when I can't be there. Well, I mean, certainly, I think that some of these tactics are needed, right? I think all of us who are experiencing these, whether it is with our kids uh, in school or it is in our professional lives, whether we're trying to learn something or actually just having our, our meetings and, and, and seminars and things, I think the world is hungry for the kind of interactivity that you're suggesting. So the, the only question in my mind is, how quickly can this scale to a uh, larger amount of people than than you even could possibly reach? You know, with with that startup or in those two institutions or or, or various places that you are uh, sharing this with with clients. To what extent is this rocket science, and to what extent is it actually not rocket science? But it takes a vision for what it could be like, and then it actually can be implemented with existing teachers with just more mindful and perhaps, uh, you know, with some platforms that, that sure. you know, make I them mean, not reinvent the wheel. Existing teachers are all using Zoom now, right? I mean, look at Zoom yep. stock and you can see how many, and I own a very small amount of Zoom stock, but, but uh, um, you know, you, you can see what the adoption has been like. So, so yeah, you've got, you, the tech, it's not a technology problem. Technology can help make us better, and technology holds the promise of offering something that's even better than an in-person classroom. But today, technology can get us back to being as good as an in-person classroom 
if people take on a, a somewhat different way of working. And none of the techniques I talk about in terms of applying cognitive or neuroscience are, in fact, groundbreaking. These are pedagogical techniques that have been known for years. They just haven't been widely adopted enough. And so we need to get people more readily using things that have been around, and we can dramatically improve even this sort of, you know, video conference-based learning experience. So would you say that you're optimistic then at the end of the day on how COVID and this uh, decade is starting? Or would you say that you're, uh, I know we had a discussion about whether innovation is still happening or we are kind of just regurgitating our existing networks because we are a bit under lockdown, but on balance, you know, do you, wh yeah. where is this going for you? So, so, I mean, COVID is a catastrophe. I don't want to pretend that it's a great, oh, it's so wonderful. But at the same time, um, what COVID has done for us is it's reduced barriers to trying out different ideas, both on the government activism and intervention standpoint and on the individual consumer standpoint. Professors have been now more willing to try digital. And once they've tried it, they realize, you know, actually, this is not so scary, or this is not so hard, or this is actually can be good. And so a lot of the sort of resistance that, that was in place before around digital adoption has been swept away by exigencies. But, but I think some of that's going to stick. And so instead of waiting 10 years to get to 300 million people of regular recurring digital learners after we have a vaccine, I think we'll be at 300 million, you know, by 2022, even after a vaccine. I think more people are going to stick with digital once they realize, you know, it can be good. David, last question. How do you track trends and stay up to date on, on all these uh, phenomena? So you're active. You started out very active on fintech and you have a, mm. a thriving program. You write books yeah. about fintech. Uh, you're, you're on digital learning. You're, you're tracking AI. Where do you go to uh, get fresh? Well, I, I mean, the, the best place to get fresh is, is these live thought leader events like Davos. That's where you go to Davos for a week and you get a weird, a, a, at least six months worth of ideas, if not a year's worth. So, so that is a little challenging. But, uh, um, uh, and there are other thought leader conferences. But, but setting that aside, um, I talk to a lot of smart people as often as I can. So there's a wonderful blog called Both Sides of the Table that Mark Suster publishes. And so he's called Both Sides of the Table because he has been an entrepreneur and he's been a venture capitalist. And he has this 50 coffee dates rule. Like when he's learning a new topic, he goes out with 50 people on coffee. And I have found everyone is super receptive to the virtual coffee or the virtual drinks. And so you can do it even under COVID. So there's a buddy of mine, uh, Rich Titus, who, you know, he sets aside time every week to connect with someone in his network. And, and so he's harvesting ideas every week. So you can make it a, a weekly or a daily practice. But, but what I do is I, I try to talk to as many smart people as I can on a regular basis. Where do you find those smart people? Well, I got 20,000 people in my LinkedIn network, so I start there. But, you know, there are a lot of people who come up to me on LinkedIn and randomly say, hey, can I talk to you for 15 minutes or 20 minutes? And I usually say yes. I mean... If it's clear that it's a sales pitch, I say no. But if they're an entrepreneur looking for advice, typically I will offer that advice. Great. 
Well, thanks, David. This is uh, very, very interesting. You've got a thriving portfolio of uh, teaching and learning and books and uh, lots of things going on. So uh, definitely looking out for, for your next book and uh, what you're uh, up to next. Thanks. Thanks so much, John. You have just listened to episode 51 of the Futurized podcast with host Trondarne Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was AI for learning. Our guest was futurist David Schreier, managing director and co-founder of Esme Learning Solutions and associate fellow at Oxford University. In this conversation, we talked about what's next in digital learning innovation. We discussed the challenge of bringing cognitive science to online learning. We explored the effects of real-time feedback on social learning metrics, how to develop critical thinking, how to use AI to solve problems in the world, and how to scale it beyond elite institutions. We explore a future where online learning might be even better than campus learning. My takeaway is that AI already is becoming an integral learning tool. Startups are increasingly using advanced analytics to transform the learning process with instant quantifiable feedback. At the same time, AI does have the potential for harm, even on learning outcomes. We need to do it right. We need to make sure AI is used to better learning experiences for all students, not just the elite. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurized.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.